Good evening and welcome to Proverbs session number 16. My name is Doug Taylor. Great to have you with us. And tonight we will be starting with Proverbs chapter 11 verse 5. Again, Proverbs chapter 11 verse 5. And the verse reads, The righteousness of the perfected will guide his way, and in his wickedness the wicked will fall or fail. The righteousness of the perfected will guide his way, and in his wickedness the wicked will fall or fail. So let's start with the classic opening. What are the questions associated with that verse? What might we want to be asking to try to understand what it is that King Solomon's trying to get across to us? And while you're thinking, I will reiterate that uh, most of the material that will be, most if not all the material in this class and other classes comes from uh, work that uh, was primarily done by Rabbi Morton Moskowitz, uh, my Proverbs teacher and mentor. And so uh, hopefully I will be transmitting it, transmitting it to you all uh, completely inappropriately. I have to take responsibility for any errors, but I want to attribute all the uh, lifetime of work that Rabbi Moskowitz has done in this area. Okay, Proverbs 11.5, The righteousness of the perfected will guide his way, and in his wickedness the wicked will fail. Okay, so Naomi, you've written how the righteousness will guide and straightens the path, and how the wicked will fall and where he will fall. Very good. So, yeah, if it says the righteousness of the perfected will guide his way, like, how? How does that work? And importantly, how do we see that in the real world on a practical basis? Because as we've talked about before, the book of Proverbs is a very practical book. Uh, and how will the wicked fall? Uh, how does that come about? Where will that happen? Uh, so, good questions. So, uh, the medieval commentator, the Ibn Ezra, says <coughs> excuse me, that uh, the term guides his way means that for the righteous, his righteousness will make sure that he does not fail. And so that raises the question of, gee, why does he learn it or translate it that particular way? I mean, it seems like it should say that the righteous will be successful, not just that he won't fail. And the Ibn Ezra says that his proof for this approach is that the second half of the verse says the wicked will fail, so the contrast must be that the righteous won't fail. But isn't success and failure, aren't those two opposites? Isn't that a contrast? So why doesn't he make that distinction? So that's a question that uh, we would we would want to ask. Okay. And and Pamela, you've said, is it like a light to guide him? Uh, I think that that you're getting to a uh, you're on a good path. And let's see where that where that will lead, and if that comes around here to fit in, I think that it will. So the phrase guides his way seems like it's a positive thing. But 
the Ibn Ezra has this interpretation that the righteous won't fail. So the question is, well, where does he get that? I mean, the idea that guide your way means that you won't fail. And another question that we probably want to ask is, what is the difference between succeeding and not failing? What's the difference between success and not failing? And then we've got to find out what this righteousness of the perfected part is about. So let's summarize some questions here. We want to know how the righteousness are, are guided and how this, what the righteousness of the perfected means. We want to know uh, how the wicked fail in their wickedness. We want to know why the Ibn Ezra contrasts failure and not failure as opposed to contrasting success and failure. Uh, and we want to know what the difference is between success and non-failure. So let me start down a road here before I do. So uh, Pamela, you wrote a halakha covers most of life. Yes, that's correct. Not sure where you're you're headed with that. Uh, ah, so the wicked stumbles in the dark. Yes, but we're going to want to get more specific about exactly how that works. Um, because there are a lot, it's true that halakha covers all of life, but there are a lot of things that we do that don't necessarily fall, you know, directly in the realm of halakha. And so let's see if we can analyze a little bit how it is that uh, the wicked are going to end up failing. I mean, they will ultimately fail, um, uh, you know, in life without halakha, but there are some things in the practical world they could be very successful at. I mean, a thief could be violating halakha all over the place and be successful at robbing a bank. Um, so, and you mentioned you're, you're thinking in terms of guidance. Okay, good. Uh, okay. So let's ask, along that line of, of the wicked, let's ask the difference between, what's the difference between a, a tzaddik and a rasha, a righteous person and a wicked person? And Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say that a righteous person, sorry, a wicked person, because he is self-centered, tries to change reality to fit in his perspective of the physical world. And if he can't get it to fit, then he twists and turns until he gets it to somehow work out. Gets it to somehow work out. So he's very self-centered, trying to change reality to fit the way he wants things to be. By contrast, the righteous person is constantly trying to get his emotions and his incorrect view of life in line with reality. Okay, so two very different approaches. One's trying to change reality to fit into my perspective. The righteous person is trying to get his perspective in line with reality. Now, there are a couple of types of systems. There's the physical world uh, and our relationship to it. And then there are people and our relationships with them. Now, most people can accept their relationship with the physical world, and they recognize that they have to give in to the physical world. Uh, I mean, for example, you have to watch when crossing a busy street. 
so that you don't get hit by the traffic. Uh, most people don't resist doing that. They just accept, yeah, that's part of the physical world. Uh, if you get sick, you may need to go to a doctor. Uh, and, you know, some people may resist going to a doctor because they don't like to see doctors, but they don't necessarily resist the reality of that. There are certain things in the physical world that you have to accept. But in our relationships with others, that becomes a little more difficult because there we have to accept uh, a reality where our emotions are much stronger against accepting that particular type of reality. Um, and I'd submit that uh, the ultimate and most difficult reality to accept is that you're part of a system of human beings, a system of justice and kindness. And a large part of the Torah relates to the system of justice and how we relate to others. So we have to relate to the laws of both nature and people, and it's easier to be bound by the laws of nature uh, than to accept where we have to be bound by the laws of justice. So for example, if I have the flu, it's easier for me to accept that I can't do certain things than it is to accept that I can't gossip or do certain things in relation to other people. Those types of restrictions are harder for us. I mean, no one really likes to be restricted. We want to feel like we're free. And it's harder to accept restrictions on ourselves around people than it is to accept restrictions around the laws of nature. Um, okay, let me pause here. Uh, and, yeah, Naomi, you've mentioned one follows Torah with reality, the other fails to know the reality. Exactly right. The righteous follow Torah, uh, and they, wanna, they want to walk in and understand reality. Uh, the wicked person doesn't care so much about reality, but more is more concerned about how things work for them. So, um... The highest level that a person can operate on is when he recognizes that he or she is just a part of the system and not above that system, but just a part of it. So with that as background, when the verse says that the righteousness of the person guides his way, what does that mean? When we say that someone is perfected, that means he has no conflicts. And when he relates to the physical world, he knows he has to operate in accordance with that system. If his emotions accept that, then his emotions guide him to operate in accordance with that system. And that system could be the system of uh, the laws of physical nature, it could be politics, it could be the system of justice, of kindness, whatever. Uh, these latter ones are systems that are, relate to people. And for the perfected person, his emotions immediately guide him into using his mind with regard to those systems. That's what it means that the righteousness of the perfected will guide his way. In other words, that perfection that he has worked on, that elimination of conflicts, means that his emotions will automatically guide him into working in accordance with the system. And whether it's systems with regard to people or systems with regard to the laws of nature. By contrast, 
The wicked person is training himself to operate in accordance with his emotions. And he's training himself to think he is always right. And that anything that goes against him, he's going to twist around to try to fit in with his emotions. So he's going further and further away from reality. He's training his emotions to do that, to, to support him in getting further and further from reality. So that's what it means that his wickedness will cause him to fall, meaning he's training himself to go further from reality, and the farther away you get from reality, the bigger chances you are of making a big mistake. Okay, we pause and make sure. Are we, are we clear so far? Okay, I'll take no response as a yes. Now, success is reaching a certain goal that you set for yourself. So, success and failure is about goals. Now, when you're talking about failure and non-failure, you're talking about opposites in the physical world. Failure and not failure is about practicality in this world. Non-failure would mean that you didn't harm yourself. Okay, and for practical reasons, you want to prevent any harm from occurring to you. So, let's take an example. If you want a car because you want to drive a nice car, I mean, that's your motivation. I would like to have a car because I'd like to be able to drive a nice car. That's a goal. And if you're successful, then you'll get the car. And if you don't reach your goal, then you will have failed in that goal. Okay, so that's one possible case. But now let's say that you need a car for business purposes, and if you don't get one, your business will fail. That's not about a personal desire, and it's not about an ego thing. That's a practical reality. I have got to have this car or my business will fail. So that's about not failing. The first case where it's my goal and it's kind of a personal desire and ego thing, that's about success. The second case is about not failing because I don't want to bring myself harm by having my business fail. So you'll notice that the second half of the verse talks about not being or about being destroyed. It says the wicked will fail, will fall. So the opposite of that is about not being destroyed. Okay? So the Ibn Ezra has selected talking about failure and non-failure because he's talking about the practicality of the physical world. Not necessarily success in some personal desire or ego goal that I have, but he's talking about um, uh, failure in the physical world that might harm me versus non-failure where I don't get harmed. So the righteous... The righteousness of the perfected will guide their emotions to support operating in accordance with systems, both of people and the laws of nature, which will prevent harm to them, prevent them from failing. Whereas the wicked, because they're so self-centered and because they just want reality to conform to them, they will fall or fail. Okay? Any questions about this verse? Does that make sense? Okay. 
Good, thank you. Let me just wait till you're done to make sure there aren't any other questions. Pamela, you've asked, is it just failure of goals? No, I mean, the, the verse is talking about a failure in the physical world that would harm you. And so in the second part, it's talking about the wicked will fail or fall. Uh, I mean, we're talking about a, you know, a, a serious failure here and potentially their, I think, their destruction. Uh, okay. Okay, good. And Naomi, you remark success and failures are understood with respect to the language uh, these days. Yes, the, the, people probably wouldn't ordinarily make that distinction between uh, a failure from a practical standpoint and success being uh, more of a, a goal-oriented thing. Um, you know, did I, did I get the car? If I just want the car for personal pleasure, there's no real harm to me if I don't get it, apart from the fact that my ego just, you know, didn't get its desire. But if I needed the car for a very practical reason that has real practical physical consequences if I don't get it, then the failure means harm to me. Uh, so. Yes, and Naomi, you're quite right. The practical aspect gets very forgotten. Uh, especially, uh, I, I can only speak uh, you know, really for U.S. society, but I suspect it's worldwide, uh, at least in many cultures, that this idea of success and gaining more and whatever is very prevalent. Uh, in the U.S. it's, it's just rampant. Uh, and we lose sight uh, of the practicality uh, of why we do things uh, and, and what the purpose is. I mean, as an example, if you think of someone who, who has a job uh, and let's say they're doing very well, or, or they have a business, uh, or they've invested, or whatever, and they have they have earned enough money so that it's very clear that all their needs are taken care of for the rest of their lives. So why would they continue to work? And some of those people are very driven to have to do that. They, they just can't let up. Well, if it's not a practical motivator, uh, then it's got to be something from their emotions. Uh, and we were discussing this in, you know, uh, in our uh, class this morning that, you know, that stems from, uh, or can stem from, the idea that if I, you know, if I have lots of money, I'm a superman. I can do anything. It's that fantasy of, of power beyond the practical. Um, but at the end of the day, we're, we're all physical and, uh, you know, we're all headed to the grave, and no matter how much money you have or whatever, you can't stop that inevitable flow. Um, so uh, it is important to distinguish the difference between the practical and what's a fantasy. Um, Pamela, you've asked an interesting question. Take a successful uh, terrorist attack like Mumbai. Is that guy destined to fall? Um, yes, I would say he is. Now that doesn't mean that a terrorist attack couldn't harm a lot of people. Uh, but ultimately, uh, we see from history uh, that 
you know, people who are, you know, truthfully wicked, uh, eventually fail as a result of their wickedness. Uh, we, we've discussed before, I think, on this class, uh, or in this class, that Hitler is a great example of that. I mean, he was, he was successful in the sense that his plans were, seemed to be working in the early stages of what he was doing, but as the war went on, he became more of a megalomaniac, more self-centered, and began to try to make reality uh, different than it really was. And that ultimately ended up uh, causing him to make bad military decisions. Uh, I mean, bad for the German army, good for the rest of the world. Uh, that ultimately resulted in, uh, as I understand it, in uh, Germany's uh, loss in the war. So, yes, those people will, uh, I think, ultimately fall, but that doesn't mean that they can't do an awful lot of damage along the way. Um, and, you know, as we see from events, as we quoted, like Mumbai, uh, and so forth. So, uh, and Naomi, you mentioned there the dead bodies still yet to be taken uh, from here. That's incredibly sad. Uh, so yes, a lot of a lot of carnage and uh, and uh, destruction can be left in their wake. I mean, the wicked can do a lot of damage, no question about it. Uh, I mean, fortunately, in a in a macro sense, God set up the world with uh, I think some fail-safe mechanisms, uh, in the sense that the the wicked ultimately cause their own demise, but they sure can do a lot of uh, destruction along the way. Okay. Um, any other com questions or comments on that first? Okay. Um, let's move on to um, chapter 11, verse 6, which is a really interesting in that it's similar but not identical to verse 5. Uh, it reads... The righteousness of the upright will save them, but the faithless shall be trapped in their own disaster. Now, the righteousness of the upright will save them, but the faithless shall be trapped in their own disaster. Now, again, this verse is similar to verse 5, but has a somewhat different meaning. Uh, the first half says that the righteousness of, uh, righteousness of the upright will save them, as opposed to verse 5, which says that the righteousness of the upright will guide his way. The second half of this verse says that the faithless or the treacherous will be caught up in the destruction that they planned for someone else. So this verse seems to be talking directly about results. So how do we see that the righteousness of the upright will save them? Well, for the reasons we just discussed in the last verse and in other verses, we know that the righteous work with their minds and they analyze situations realistically and they operate rationally within the world. That righteousness can save them in difficulties because they'll anticipate events more realistically, they'll make correct decisions, they'll know how to protect themselves in times of trouble and so forth. By contrast, uh, the faithless, or at least one translation, they translated it the treacherous, are operating, as we've discussed, in the world of emotions. 
Now, driven by those emotions, they're planning some type of disaster or destruction for someone else. However, because they're operating in the world of the emotions, they aren't seeing reality clearly and are thus virtually certain to eventually make mistakes. And those mistakes will eventually cause them harm, so they get trapped in their own disaster. Now, it might not be the specific physical circumstances of a given situation, but they are trapped in the disasters they're planning. In other words, the whole idea that they're planning disasters, they're trapped in, um, and they'll eventually have a downfall because they are caught up in the process of planning destruction for someone else. Um, in other words, the fact that they're doing that means that they must be operating in the world of the emotions, which means they must ultimately face consequences because they will be operating not in the world of reality and therefore will ultimately make mistakes. So I'm suggesting that the faithless are trapped in the destruction that they intend to perpetrate on others, not necessarily in the sense of the physical act, but the trapped part uh, referring to their being caught up in their emotions of planning such an event and that that emotional outlook on life will eventually be their downfall. Okay, any questions on that verse? Uh, Pamela, you mentioned uh, Iran and their nuclear ambitions. I think that is, you know, certainly depends on what it is that uh, they are ultimately planning, but if they are... Um, you know, secretly planning the disaster of someone else, uh, yes, I th think that that will ultimately come back uh, to trap them. Not necessarily, you, know, you can't name a time and a place or how that will work, but the sheer approach of operating that way will ultimately lead, uh, it seems to me, to someone's uh, destruction. They'll have to implode almost uh, because you simply can't continuously forever and ever operate um, outside of reality and uh, it would seem be successful. Uh, and operating on hate, Pamela, I think is the same thing. Um, that's an emotion, a very strong emotion that drives you uh, immensely and uh, ultimately has to lead to some type of uh, internal meltdown or destruction or uh, a mistake being made because that emotion will cause you uh, ultimately to have a distortion in your view of reality. Okay, any questions on either of these two verses? Okay, let's move on to Chapter 11, verse 7. And the verse reads, With the death of a wicked man, his hope is lost, and his hope for power will also be lost. With the death of a wicked man, his hope is lost, and his hope for power will also be lost. So, what are the questions we could ask?
Okay, Naomi, you said in what he lacks, uh, will he be trapped in, in uh, what and what they plot and to whom they plot. I'm, I'm not sure if you're referring to the last verse or this one. Uh, what's the hope after death? That is a very good question. That's a very good question. Uh, with the death of a wicked man, his hope is lost. Yeah, what's, what hope could he have after death? Um, and uh, Pamela, you said uh, your translation says expectation of his offspring. Is that in the first half or the second half of the verse? Second half. So his hope the expectation of his offspring is lost. Is that the way yours reads? Okay, there are some different different translations of this. The translation that I'm going with is according to the Ibn Ezra. And uh, so let me let me uh, okay, and I see parishes. Thank you. Let me go down this road and let's see if we can find some insight on this. When when the Ibn Ezra says, or when it says the hope of a wicked man, uh, the Ibn Ezra says that it means his desire to oppress others. So the reading of the verse would be like this. With the death of a wicked man, his hope to oppress others is lost, and his hope for power is lost. So, that raises a couple of questions. First of all, if the guy dies, I mean, you'd think all his hope is lost. So, why does it say his hope to oppress others is lost, and his hope for power is lost? Well, of course his hope for power is lost. I mean... He's dead. I mean, what, what, uh, why is, why is King Solomon identifying, you know, two different things here? It seems rather unusual. And usually, the Ibn Ezra contrasts between a wicked person and a righteous person. So why doesn't he make that contrast here? Um, and and as we will see in a moment, according to the Ibn Ezra, it seems that he is making a contrast between two different qualities in a wicked person. Okay? Because the verse doesn't seem to be dealing at all with a righteous person. And Pamela, you said maybe it's a warning to the power hungry. Could be. Could be. That's a good point. Uh, it certainly seems pretty clear, if you're power hungry, that your hope for power is going to be lost, you know, at death. So, what's the difference between the desire for power and the desire to oppress people, to put them down? I mean, it seems like those would come from the same quality. Um, and so, nothing ha I mean, we, we can clearly say that nothing happens after a person is dead. Okay? But that's obvious. I mean, King Solomon would not need to tell us that. 
So it must be that he is giving us some new information here. Uh, and the question is, what is that new information? I mean, he would not necessarily tell us something that is so obvious that anyone can see it. So we need to look a little deeper to see if there's something else here. What this verse seems to be about, and Pamela, you're, it's a good point, you're, uh, you're getting a hint of it here when you mention a reminder of mortality. The verse appears to be talking to the emotions of the fantasy of immortality. The idea that a person feels like they'll live forever. And apparently, the verse is holding that the desire to oppress others and the desire for power is somehow connected to the idea of immortality. So that would suggest a question, which is, what's the connection? How are those two things connected? So Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say, the basic motive of either of these two emotions, the desire for power and the desire to oppress others, is that they will give you immortality. So the verse is apparently telling us that what we should do is to see reality and not let that emotion take over our lives. But we're going to have to ask where the Ibn Ezra is seeing that in these two particular emotions, the desire to hurt others and the desire for power over others. I mean, the two emotions seem very similar. And where is the Ibn Ezra seeing in these two emotions the desire for immortality? Okay, so Pamela, very good point. If a person has power, he feels invincible. Feels like he, you know, he's Superman, he's strong, he can do anything. So, that's a good point. Um, so, then we could also ask another question. Why do we say that the verse is talking about the fantasy of mortality? Because it says with the death of a wicked person, his hopes are lost. Now, again, we don't need King Solomon to tell us that. So, the verse must be telling us that somewhere in the wicked person's emotions, he feels that somehow he's going to last afterwards. And King Solomon is telling him, no, you won't. And King Solomon apparently thought that he had to tell this person this, which means that the wicked must be operating on the basis of an unconscious emotion, that he is not seeing. Because otherwise the wicked would clearly see that they're going to die. I mean, it's no great surprise that every one of us is going to die. So, I mean, every, every human being, uh, you know, ends up dying. Uh, you know, with, with a few noted exceptions in history, but uh, generally speaking, we're all headed to the grave. So, but apparently somehow the wicked person is faking himself out. And King Solomon is feeling a need to tell him that he's faking himself out. So, according to the Ibn Ezra, King Solomon is talking to that emotion in the wicked person that has this fantasy of immortality. Okay? And let me pause. Naomi, you mentioned uh, power by virtue of money or wealth. 
Yes, that's true. However, remember, this verse is talking about two issues. One is the uh, uh, ability or desire to oppress others, and the other of just power itself. Now, that power could come from money or wealth. Uh, could come because he's in a rulership position or a kingly position or something like that. Okay, but it's those those two things: a sense of power and the, and the uh, wanting to put other people uh, down or oppress them. So let's take another step. A person who has the fantasy of immortality can't be facing reality. He has to hide within the fantasy of immortality. He has to cover up reality because reality is telling him, "Hey, buddy, you're going to die." Uh, and he doesn't want to accept that. So he is hiding somewhere in this fantasy of immortality and somehow covering up reality. Somehow he has to prove in his own mind that he's going to live forever. Now, the Ibn Ezra seems to be saying that somehow the desire for power covers up the reality of mortality so that a person can still believe that he'll live forever. You know, if I gain power, I can subjugate others. Somehow, that that uh, idea is causing the person to be able to cover up the reality of mortality. So, how is it that these two activities cause me to feel that way? Uh, to feel that somehow reality is proving to me that I will live forever? All right? So... And I, I should pause and say, we've, we're, our methodology here is we're accepting the premise of the Ibn Ezra, and we're working backward, and hopefully we'll be able to see how the Ibn Ezra got to his conclusion. Okay? So, uh, Pamela, yes, he's, he's certainly living in fantasy land, and he wants to recreate his own reality, but there's got to be something in the idea of power and oppressing other people that causes him to think that reality is somehow demonstrating to him that he's going to be able to live forever. Okay. Now, according to the Ibn Ezra, the wicked person's hope is to subjugate poor people. Why poor people over anybody else? So, to understand this, we have to realize that there's a part of us that we're not aware of. And in this part of us that we're not aware of, there is a fantasy of immortality that probably everyone has. A certain fantasy that I'm going to live forever and not die. Trouble is, reality keeps intruding and keeps forcing us to face our mortality. So what people try to do is to prove their immortality or deny their mortality. Okay, those are two different things. One is the denial of mortality. One is proving to myself that I'm somehow immortal. And Rabbi Moskowitz is suggesting that's what the Ibn Ezra is saying. He's saying there are two ways of denying reality to hold on to your fantasy of immortality. One way is to prove that you're immortal or the other way is to deny that you're mortal. Okay, so now let's take another step. And let me pause here. Um, 
how about oppression of the people and, and say, uh, by police? Could be, and I, it's hard to say in any individual case, uh, because what King Solomon's really getting at uh, is the hope that a person would have. So, you know, a policeman could be operating on the basis of many different motivations. Uh, and even in the same group, you know, by individual and individual, it might be different what the, what the motivation is. Um, now, Pamela, you mentioned that they can't fight back. The poor can't fight back. That's a very good point. Um, and let's, let's carry that one forward just a little bit. Let me pause because I see you're both writing something and I don't want to get ahead of this. Ah, uh, yeah, the SS and the Nazis. Okay, very good. And I think we'll see how that plays, how that ties in here in just a moment. Uh, and yes, Pamela, we get to see in history what happened to so-called divine emperors. They all died too. Uh, so, let's ask this question, what's power? And I'll suggest that power means that I have control over the physical world. Uh, and that can be via people. So uh, a scientist might feel that when he creates certain things that allows him a sense of control. A doctor could feel it when he or she saves lives and so forth. It's a feeling that I can control the physical world. And this feeling is attached to the fantasy of immortality uh, because uh, a person could use this as a proof. See, I can control the physical world. I can change things around me. I can force people to do things. I can save lives. And all this constantly proves to me that I'm beyond the physical and therefore I'll live forever. Okay, That's what the Ibn Ezra is saying that power is. It's that sense, and it may happen very unconsciously uh, that a person is thinking that, but that can be going on where that ability to control the physical world is a way that I unconsciously convince myself uh, I won't die. On the other hand, okay, we see uh, people with certain weaknesses. Now, since we're human, we have a certain identification with these people. And that weakness shows me that I'm mortal. So I have to constantly, if I want to avoid uh, the idea that I'm mortal or to prove to myself that I'm immortal, I have to constantly deny my identification with people who have weaknesses. Okay? A poor person is one type, a classic type. Then there are older people, there are crippled people, people who are sick, and so forth. Anything that uh, the wicked person senses is a weakness comes into this category. Okay, And if he senses himself identifying with these people, then he has to deny it because it makes him recognize his own mortality. So he has to distance himself from those people and cut off any identification with them so that he can maintain the fantasy that he's not mortal. Now, go back to what you just described. 
the poor. It's very easy if you're a wealthy person uh, or and you desire to do this, a wicked wealthy person, to disassociate yourself with poor people. And particularly if you have power over them, well then, you know, I'm me and they're them. And I'm the one with the power and they're my subjects. So I break identification and I no longer see myself as the same strata of human beings uh, as, as, uh, as they are. They're a lower class. They're a something else. They're a this, they're a that. But I'm, you know, I'm something different. I'm something special. You see the, how the Nazis did this in World War II. They took the Jewish people and completely uh, characterized them in such a way as to dissociate and cut off any identification with them as human beings so that the SS and Nazis uh, could could uh, treat them in just horrific ways uh, and you know somehow live with that because they cut off identification with them as real human beings uh, and, and similarly with other groups um, Pamela you mentioned Canute uh, and I have to tell you that I don't know what that means so if you can elaborate on on that that's not a term that I'm familiar with so there's this disidentification that allows me to maintain that fantasy and by having power over other people being able to oppress other people I subconsciously reinforce the idea that I'm different and therefore uh, I won't die so on the first half the power is to constantly prove my immortality because I have control over the physical the second part it has to do with my identification with people who have weaknesses which causes me to recognize my own mortality so I have to constantly do acts and do things to break that relationship uh, with people who are mortal so that my fantasy of immortality won't be broken down uh, and that is what I understand uh, from Rabbi Moskowitz that the Ibn Ezra is saying uh, now, um, ah, okay, Pamela, thank you. Thought he could halt the tide in Britain, uh, a Dane, and he ended up, uh, uh, yep, getting wet. Okay. Um, now, the verse does say poor people, uh, but Rabbi Moskowitz thinks that that means any person with a weakness, any type of person where the wicked person senses that their fantasy is broken down, they'll work to break that identification. Okay? Alright, any questions then on this verse? Okay, so let me just clarify the methodology that we used in going through this. Many times, we just look at the ideas and we try to understand them. In this case, we didn't know exactly what the Ibn Ezra is saying, so we began to try to understand what he was saying about the verse. Whether we agreed with it or not, at that point, really didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, it had to do with the fact that he's a, you know, a, a great sage and a wise person, and he wouldn't say something foolish, so he must have had something in mind. So we started taking his steps to see where it would lead, uh, even though we didn't know how it would fit into the world 
uh, how it would fit into the world of reality, uh, but we started going down those steps. Uh, and then, once we got there, we began to uncover and see, ah, this is what he's talking about, this is what he means, and then we can see how it fits into the verse. Most of the time when we study Proverbs, uh, we see what, what King Solomon is trying to get across, and then it's just a matter of working out the, the details. Here, it wasn't clear immediately what the verse was getting at, so we used a slightly different approach by trying to abstract um, from the Ibn Ezra what he was holding until finally we could see uh, his approach and then, uh, and then that made sense. So, any questions on that? Uh, Naomi, yes, in answer to your question, Rabbi Moskowitz still uh, uh, lives in the Seattle area and teaches and uh, uh, is still giving classes on uh, on Torah. Really great man. It's a real privilege to know him. Okay. Uh, let's see. I think we have time maybe for one more verse. Unless you have other questions. Oh, thank you, Naomi. I appreciate that very much. And, and Pamela... I completely agree with you. Uh, I, you know, I think the little bit I'd read of Proverbs, I thought, oh yeah, this is pretty straightforward until I began to learn with him. And then it just opened my eyes to uh, whole new, whole new vistas uh, of learning. Uh, and Naomi, thank you. It's, uh, it's my pleasure to be able to share these ideas with you and uh, the, this study, and, and I am not exaggerating, um, has literally changed my life and changed the way I think about ideas and uh, the way I ask questions about things in, in everyday life and business and so forth. Um, and so, uh, and, and this is, as we've discussed before, you know, a, a wonderfully dual purpose process in that we get to learn some really important and deep content, and at the same time, uh, the methodology of learning that content teaches us how to think and analyze ideas, and then we can take that and transfer it, you know, into other areas uh, of our lives. So, uh, and Pamela Naomi, thank you. Appreciate that very much. Uh, I have eight minutes to the top of the hour. Uh, we can stop here or we can tackle one more verse. Uh, your choice. What would you prefer to do? Okay. Alright. We'll keep going. So Proverbs chapter 11 verse 8. Uh, reads like this, a righteous person escapes from troubles and a wicked person comes and takes his place. A righteous person escapes from troubles and a wicked person comes and takes his place. So that's got to engender some questions. What are the questions? Okay, good, Naomi. 
How, how is the wicked escaped from trouble or removed from affliction? And how is the wicked replaced with that? And good, Pamela, where was the righteous? Where was the righteous that he had to escape from trouble? Uh, so let's see if we can get some answers to those questions. Uh, I mean, you know, a key one is this second half, the wicked person comes and takes his place. I mean, we understand the wicked get certain consequences for their actions, and we've talked about that. But how is it work that a wicked person ends up with the troubles that somehow would have otherwise befallen the righteous person? So, all of the commentaries, uh, apparently on this verse, say that it's dealing with God's personal relationship, or God's personal providence, uh, with the righteous. We really live in two worlds. One is the world of the laws of nature, of cause and effect, where we see things happen and we can explain the things behind us. And then there is the world of good and evil, the world of God's personal providence. Um, both systems work. Uh, when we talk about God's personal providence, this is God's personal intervention in human affairs God intervenes, as I understand it, only on the basis of good and evil. But at the same time, we live in a world of cause and effect. If I do something incorrect, I will get the consequences. If, a, if, a, if I swim in a riptide, then it's likely that I will be pulled under and die. Uh, and what if I'm ignorant? What if I didn't know there was an undertow or a riptide there? It doesn't matter. It makes no difference. It doesn't make any difference whether you're just or unjust. Generally speaking, the laws of nature of cause and effect happen whether I'm aware of them or not, which interestingly is one of the reasons why knowledge is such an important thing in, in physical, all kinds of physical real-life situations. It's a protection against negative consequences. So. Uh, Pamela, when you talk about this is not the environment of our souls, um, no, we're talking, uh, God's providence here is talking about when God personally intervenes in the laws of nature, in the physical world, to uh, perhaps save a uh, righteous person uh, who otherwise might have died uh, or been harmed by the laws of nature. Um, that's, that's what this is talking about. Now, God's personal providence relates to us via uh, the individual human being's justice and righteousness. So the verse is saying that in God's systems, if, according to the laws of nature, a righteous person would get into some trouble based on the laws of nature and cause and effect. And there's nothing that he can do about it. But he deserves to be protected because of good and evil, because of his righteousness. Then God saves him from that situation. Okay? So that's God's personal problems. Now, when God saves him from that situation, according to the system, Someone must take the place of that person. And this is according to the commentator, the Meiri. This is what the verse is saying. 
that somebody has to take the place of the righteous person. And so the wicked person will get that very trouble that the righteous person should have gotten according to the laws of nature. So again, God intervenes and God places a wicked person in the righteous person's place and the wicked person gets the consequences that the righteous person should have gotten. Okay. Uh, Pamela, you wrote, uh, like, charity saves from death. Yes, that could happen in this case. Uh, let's say uh, there was a righteous person, and they had given charity, and they had done everything else very righteously, and they were caught in uh, our hurricane. Okay? And maybe they were going to die. Then it's, if they deserved it, and it was... God's decision to do so, then God could intervene in the physical world and somehow alter events to protect that righteous person from dying in that hurricane. Okay? So, and it could be sickness, could be a number of things. So, we understand that God's personal supervision is there sometimes to protect the righteous. But then the question comes, why is there a necessity to place somebody else in that situation? You know, why does the wicked person have to be put in the place of the righteous? Why not just say the righteous person and that's that? Why does the wicked person get brought into this? So, Rabbi Moskowitz said the following. He said, today man has made certain decisions about ecology. For example, in one instance, I understand they took certain goats from the mountains in one area and they transported some of them to uh, another set of mountains. And because they were goats that were apparently designed for this particular set of mountains and not the other particular set of mountains, now it's really messing up the ecology. So you have to be very, very careful when you start tinkering with ecological systems because you don't realize the other effects that your actions may be having. For example, most medicines have some side effect. I mean, you can't fool around with nature. You may have to take the medicine if you're sick, but you have to know that there is a certain system to nature and that it's working perfectly, and if you mess with it, then you'd better compensate, otherwise you're going to end up with a problem. Now, when the human being does, uh, or what the human being does do, is to uh, get involved in certain ecological decisions. And they have to be analyzed carefully, when to operate, when not to operate, when to intervene, when not to intervene. Now, if it's just a matter of a life and death situation, then you have no choice. But you have to know when and where. Uh, but if you just get, you know, jump right in, you have to know that you're messing with nature, and there will be consequences either in the human being or uh, in ecology. Uh, an example might be, let's suppose that a group in a certain part of the country decided that wolves were a problem. And then so they went out and they slaughtered off all the wolves. Well, and then they think, great, now we have no more wolves. Well, yeah, maybe, 
but the wolves also kept down the population of uh, deer and moose and elk. So now we suddenly have an overpopulation of deer and moose and elk running all over the place, and there's not enough food, and they end up eating all the food that's available, and that messes with the landscape, and so on and so forth, and now you have all kinds of problems and systems that were operating just fine until man started messing with them. So, what the verse seems to be saying is that according to the laws of nature, someone was supposed to have something happen to them, say they were supposed to die. Now, if that doesn't happen, then the system is being messed up, and there is a system operating here. And according to the laws of nature, that system is supposed to operate a certain way. Now, if God intervenes to help the righteous person, that's a break in the system. That could set off a chain of events that could mess up the system down the line somehow. So, apparently what the verse is saying is that God's saying is that I will compensate by placing a wicked person in that situation, even though I might not otherwise have killed this wicked person or caused him any trouble. But since he is a wicked person and there is a situation that requires the protection of the system, he is the one that God will use at that time to put the system back into balance. So when God protects the righteous person, when he intervenes, something is happening in the laws of nature. God is suspending the laws of nature. And once you start touching that system, there are side effects that could be harmful. So God is saying that to protect the righteous, that it's just to protect the righteous person, but it's unfair to the rest of society that there should be a break in the system of the laws of nature. So therefore, God takes a wicked person who he might not have otherwise bothered, and he uses that person in place of the righteous person, so the system is protected and not left with a break. Okay, so what's the subject of the verse? It's God's providence on the world. And there are two types of providence. Uh, one is related to people, and this is based on good and evil, uh, depending on them. There's another providence on the basis of the laws of nature, based on there's another providence, rather, on the laws of nature, where God makes sure that the laws of nature uh, uh, are working properly, and if something isn't working properly, he corrects it. Now, we only see from this verse that God corrects it when he himself interferes with the laws of nature to benefit the righteous. So he interferes with the laws of nature, and then he corrects it. Okay, And why does God only use the wicked to correct the system? I mean, you could make an argument, gee, is that fair for him to just pick on them? And the answer would be that when a person has reached a level where his value in life is of no benefit, okay, a wicked person, then God can use him as a replacement for the righteous for the benefit of the universe. It's my understanding that he won't use someone else because even if they're not living a good life, there is a chance they'll repent. But the wicked that's being talked about in this verse has reached a level where they won't repent or can't repent. So God can use them to benefit the universe however he sees fit. Okay. Um, and Pamela, you've said the wicked person must have had some hand in the situation. As I understand the verse, not necessarily. Uh, he might not have had any particular uh, hand in the situation that uh, the righteous is 
being uh, rescued from. But he certainly would have had, you know, obviously been wicked for some other reasons. Um, there could be a connection, there, there could not, it's hard to say. Um, but the verse is telling us that a wicked person will be put in uh, to take its place. And genetically modified foods, I would agree with you, we are tinkering with nature and that's a very dangerous thing uh, with very unknown uh, long-term side effects. You know, we, we forget quickly, there was a time when people thought, I think it was DDT, was healthy for people. Uh, and, you know, we've since found out that it's had terribly bad side effects. So, we don't know sometimes what the side effects are when we start tinkering with nature, and we have to be very, very careful with that. Any questions about this verse? Okay, we'll stop here then, and thank you for joining us.